page 95 of the essence of Zen, the wind blows everywhere. You have the book? For those people whose practice is shikantaza, as soon as you hear just sit or practice zazen single-mindedly, right away you perceive just or single-mindedly or as it is. Right now, as you see things in front of you, none of these things are in the state of as it isness or suchness, shikan. Such words or phrases as as it is or suchness are only explanations that point to reality, to the actual fact. No matter what condition we find ourselves in, it is not possible to be separate from the reality of things as they are. This means that if our intention is to become this state of things as they are, the state of suchness, this would be to put another head on top of the head we already have, a well-known Zen expression. Through the teaching of Zen, words like shikantaza or zuizokan, which means following the breath, have been created. However, from the standpoint of Buddhism as a whole, it is said that the true nature of things is without form. If it is not clearly understood that the real form of things is formless, serious mistakes will arise. And again, formless means no conceptual framework. No description, no dialogue. The internal dialogue is quiet. This is why it must be remembered that the practices of Shikantaza or Zuizokan are only skillful means that lead to formlessness. Please sit in such a way that you eliminate Shikantaza or Zuizokan. Sit so that Zazen eliminates Shikantaza or Zuizokan. Sit so that Zazen itself disappears. There is an anecdote from the past about a Zen master named Hotetsu who lived on a mountain in China. One summer day, while he was fanning himself, a monk came up and asked, The nature of the wind is that it constantly blows everywhere. Why then are you uh, using a fan? Hotetsu replied, You understand the fact that things, the wind, exist. But this is only one side of the matter. You don't know that things also do not exist, and that isn't good. The monk still could not understand, so he asked, What does it mean that things do not exist? And at that point, Hotetsu didn't say anything, but only continued fanning himself quietly. Uh, often mistakes arise in the direction of your practice, because you only know about Zen and know nothing of the Dharma. The Dharma is everywhere, and it is not the possession of any single person. This means that in order to know the true self, there is no alternative but to become the true self. Zazen isn't something that a person does. In the same way, it is not a matter of a particular person attaining enlightenment. The world of the Dharma is one in which it is completely impossible for the ego self to intervene. Please seek the Dharma and remember that the Dharma is without form. This is a, well, they all are. Every article, every section in this book is right on the mark. Incredible. 
So um, back on page 95, this thing about for those people who practice shikantaza, as soon as you hear that word, just sit uh, or practice single-mindedly or as it is -ness, um, The statement is, for those people who practice the shikantaza, as soon as you hear just sit or practice as and single-mindedly, right away you perceive just or single-mindedly or as it is. This is, this whole thing is about the subtlety with which our mind creates some kind of framework. So we have, we, we're told just do zazen, follow the breath. And when we're doing our zazen, even though we're supposedly coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath with thoughts coming and going, there's a little part of us, or maybe a big part, depending on the maturity of your practice, that is measuring your zazen. That it's, it's, it's got this idea of, oh, back to the breath. And there, there's the form. Form starting to come in. Oh, back to the breath. Oh, I'm doing zazen. Or I need to get back to the breath. As a, and that was a question one of the students I had previously asked that question. Because his, um, and he was right in that way, feeling was that when you said come back to the breath, he, what he felt was what you were doing in terms of the thinking or in distraction was wrong and that coming back to the breath is right. No. That is what is meant by perception. Perception is this idea that, oh, uh, I'm off uh, thinking about something, I'm, I'm not focused, I'm, my mind is daydreaming, bad, back to the breath. This idea that somehow what I was just doing was bad and now I'm doing the right thing, which is just as it is sitting the way it should be. Well, the because that's how our mind functions usually in daily life. It's always got some um, framework about it. And so the true realization is that that thing when you were daydreaming or whatever you were doing it, thinking about a particular thought, there isn't, the coming back to the breath is really just coming back to the breath. That's the real meaning of just. Just doesn't mean just do this and everything else is wrong or what you were doing before was not the Dharma but now you're doing the Dharma. It was just that, oh, back to the breath. There's no judgment. There's no uh, particular uh, structure or form that we give to, oh, back to the breath is good, and what I was doing was bad. That wasn't. Everything is the Dharma, but coming back to the breath, coming back to the present moment is the thing that allows you to actually realize that, to actually uh, see it, realize it. So that's what he's talking about here when he talks about per perception. We see just, we see our zazen. We're always even though we um, don't, in the beginning, what we see is uh, a constant stream of thought. And then we realize, boy, my mind is going everywhere here. Back to the breath, back to the breath. And then we sort of get into it, and we are practicing Zen. And then we get into this idea that, oh, I'm not focusing now. That's not good. I, this is, I need to get back to 
the breath uh, to doing zazen. Somehow what I was doing before wasn't zazen. Everything you're doing is zazen. But being, it's the moment that you label something, that, and when you label it, that means there's something else that's either different or better. That's the trap that we fall into. That's perception. A Buddha sees everything, but a Buddha, a, a Buddha doesn't perceive Buddha doesn't create a framework and perceive something else. Perception means you're looking at something else. Seeing means you're just looking at everything. It's not looking at something else. You're just seeing. So that's what this particular section right here is talking about. Um, and this whole thing is about formlessness. And that's why when we get to the end here, this little mondo discussion between the teacher and the student is a, an actual teaching in um, a more uh, substantial way, which is organic living way, about this whole thing about what formlessness really means in terms of daily life. What does it mean? So when you're sitting zazen, please, just it, it says here, uh, from the standpoint of Buddhism as a whole, it said the true nature of things is that form, it is not clearly understood that the real form of things is formless. If it is not clearly understood that the real form of things is formless, serious mistakes will arise. That is why it must be remembered that the practice of Shikantazo Zuizokan are only skillful means that lead to formlessness. They allow you to, to become formless, to, to actually experience formlessness itself. But then it goes on to say, please sit in, a, sit in a way that you, in such a way that you eliminate Shikantazo or Zui Zokan. Sit so the Zazen eliminates Zazen. Zazen disappears. But we are always, when we're sitting, even though we're told constantly, don't try and become a Buddha, uh, everything is the Dharma, there's a part of us that's just stubborn. It just says, I'm doing, even though you know this. There's a part that's there going, oh, I'm doing sasan. Oh, it, it's just there. I'm doing sasan. It, it's used to having a form, some sort of construct. But there has to be a time when you literally, uh, the bell rings and you have no sense of that you've done zazen. It just, it's disappeared. Or you get up off your cushion and, like I said, I've, and you walk out the door and you wondered if you did your sasan. That's because you're not forming this, this framework about zazen that somehow when you're doing the actual posture and sitting in formal zazen, that zazen, you get up off your cushion, you know everything is the dharma, but part of your mind says, oh, I'm finished zazen, back to work. And even though you know back to work is, is your zazen, you're still doing this thing all the way along. So our practice is one of literally nothing is describing that you finish sazen, that the next thing is going to work. It's just, it's seamless. You get up off your cushion, you go out and go to work, and it feels like, you did I do my sazen? Because there's no description sort of making it into two things, sazen and then your daily life. That's the true formless aspect of the practice. That is the true formless aspect of reality. Everything is that way. So, that's so sit that zazen itself disappears. You have no sense that zazen, you're just doing this thing. It's like 
after a while with zazen, it's like you get up in the morning and you brush your teeth, and you don't think about brushing your teeth as this thing. You just brush your teeth. It's something I do normally in my daily life. Well, there will come a time when you sit your zazen, when you get up, brush your teeth, wash your face, sit zazen, and walk out the door, and there's no seam there. There's no thing that forms this thing that I did zazen. I just finished, you know, I uh, I did my zazen practice. Even though we are told incessantly that, wait a minute, everything is your practice. And then you remind yourself everything is your practice, and then there you go again. There's another form. So it has to become organic, that there's no sense of uh, something extra. Um, so no matter what condition we find ourselves in, it is not possible, possible to be separate from the reality of things as they are. We create the separation with a sense of two things, self perceiving something else, perception. This means that our intention is to become this state of things as they are, the state of suchness. This means that if our intention, and this is the hard part because it's the thing that gets you to sit, it's the thing that drives you, it's the thing that you think, even though you're told it's not necessary because you're already Buddha, you don't really believe it. This means that if our intention is to become this state of things as they are, the state of suchness, this would be to put another head on top of the head we already have. It's extra because you already are a Buddha. You're already enlightened. The only problem is that you literally just don't believe that. You don't believe your situation as it is right now because you have a very strong framework, you meaning everyone, about what a Buddha is, what an enlightened being is, what a duck is, what a, you know, whatever it is, what the wind is. We have a framework about that. So it's very difficult to literally um, let go of that framework and actually just be, just exist, just actually matter of fact, accept in an incredibly direct and honest way, Dokken Senji's the eyes are horizontal, the nose is vertical, way that as you are right now, you are Buddha. So the intention to become Buddha is the thing that creates suffering because you don't believe you're Buddha. So you think there's some other state, some other deeper practice, some other aspect that you need to become or something you need to get rid of in order to become Buddha. And that will that's very difficult to get over. Because you know you you know the things that you do. You've read stories about the Buddha, you've seen the uh, Buddha statues, and you just think, well, I, I, my daily life, I'm certainly not that calm. In my daily life, I do this. I know myself very well. We put a label on that. And that label is, oh, that's, that's not what a Buddha does. All, the only thing a Buddha does is be what they are, totally. They don't construct something else. Their mind doesn't sort of peek around the corner and evaluate itself and think it needs to be something different. It doesn't do that. That is a completely settled being. That's when Zazen disappears. At that point, there's no description. 
There's no internal dialogue. There's no reference point. There's no self. That's what the Buddha realized. The moment your mind moves, the slightest micron, that's the, that's the creation of, or that's the uh, ignorance, or that's not what it was, and that's the, um, what we call the creation of self, of which there is no self. That movement, that tiny little movement, because then there's a sense of this and something else. The Buddha realized at the very core, to the very basic, um, the very basis of reality, that that movement itself is the creation of suffering. That's what dukkha means. Dukkha means suffering all the way from some catastrophic physical pain or mental pain all the way down to you just aren't totally okay with your present situation. Even if it's a tiny little bit not okay, that's still suffering. Because you are not experiencing what you truly are, what, what a moment truly is, total, complete peace. Totally okay with that situation. Okay means that this is what it is, and okay, I will deal with it. It's a very deep honesty about your situation and about your situation. And today, unfortunately, and the double sword aspect of uh, our ability to communicate in more ways, a lot more ways, uh, social media, internet, all of that, has, is a dual-edged sword that we can communicate, which is wonderful. And I, this today I was thinking about uh, the war in Ukraine, which I think something horrible is going to happen there. But anyway, and, and the whole world watching Queen Elizabeth's funeral and how we're becoming, without kind of realizing it, it's an organic process, we're becoming global. We're all sort of starting to participate in each other's reality. So um, in that sense, the communication, that's a good aspect of communication. We know what's going on. We can see it. Everybody all over the world now has cell phones. Even in Africa, everywhere, they all have a cell phone. So we can communicate. But the other thing is you're given so much information uh, that it's very difficult to, unless you are pretty stable in, in, in your being, to be able to filter out what's real and what's not real. So we tend to get a lot of misinformation, and then we really start to create all kinds of incredibly I mean, stories that I thought at this age, in the 21st century, we would not even conceive of, such as the QAnon people, and the people have these different, strange ideas about things that are, you just think a sane person wouldn't think that way. They literally wouldn't even go there. Well, that can happen when there's all this uh, sensory input, all this information. So, but a Buddha is... Uh, the eyes are vertical, the nose is the eyes are uh, horizontal, the nose is vertical. And don't be fooled by others. That was Dogen's comment. The, don't be fooled by others means you, you're not fooled by yourself either. The eyes are horizontal, the nose is vertical. Very matter of fact, you clearly see the situation. So you're not pulled into s some sort of... Uh, 
what I would call social consciousness that says the thing is this way or that way or we should be doing this or be doing that. You're aware of that, but you can actually directly see the reality of the situation. So that is our practice, this incredible honesty about the moment, what it truly is. And then this story, there's an anecdote from the past about a Zen master named Hotetsu who lived on a mountain in China. One day while he was fanning himself, a monk came up and asked, the nature of the wind is that it constantly blows everywhere. Why then are you using a fan? And this is someone who only has a partial understanding of the truth. He understands part of the truth. He understands that everything is the Dharma. But he doesn't know how to function that in his daily life. Because he's asking this master, then if everything is a dharma, then why are you fanning yourself? Like, if everything's a dharma, you don't need to do that. It's like somehow that's really not the dharma. You don't need to fan yourself. No, everything is the dharma. This is why the teacher says, you understand the fact that things, the wind, exist. But this is only one side of the matter. You don't know that things also do not exist, and that isn't good. Which means... Don't create another framework about everything is the Dharma. So why should you use a fan? Can you, that, you can feel that, that duality there. Why use the fan? Because the wind is blowing. It's very, very integrated. It's very organic. If the wind is blowing, it's hot, you use a fan in the zendo to cool yourself off. So, and the teacher is saying, you understand that the Dharma is everywhere, but you don't understand really that it's everywhere, which means you still have a framework. You're working from the framework that the Dharma is everywhere. You don't understand that uh, things do not exist, which means any kind of framework you have, even the Dharma or the Buddha, is still a framework. So, and then the monk says he doesn't understand and so he asks, what does it mean that things do not exist? At that point, Hotetsu didn't say anything, but only continued fanning himself quietly. That's the perfect, absolutely perfect answer. No framework. He was fanning himself. He didn't say to himself, well, the Dharma's everywhere. I don't need to do this. It was like a conversation I had with, it's also the tea thing I had with Rorosuke Roshu, but I had a conversation with um, uh, a monk, a pretty uh, well-practiced, sort of well-practiced monk, when I uh, visited his temple. And um, I had finished some training at Hoshinji, and I needed to go do to some takatsu, some mendicant begging. So I went down to um, his temple near Hiroshima, and they were, I think I told you this, they were finishing up the Sushin, and uh, it was interesting because in the morning, on the last day of Sushin, I was the only one there sitting in the morning. <laughs> and even he, the, the at, quote, abbot of the temple, came in a little bit later, and he was supposed to and looked at me with a sheepish kind of grin. I'm here, I'm sitting. The other guys eventually came in. And afterwards, there was a beer party. It seems to be that happens uh, at some of the monasteries. And we got to discussing... Uh, uh, well, different things, but and my thinking was this is interesting. This is how they do a session, beer celebration afterwards. And uh, I made the mistake of saying talking about the 
Rinzai aspect of Buddhism, which believes in Inkashoma, the stamp of approval of the teacher. And they all, and I said, I said, Inkashoma, oh, bad, bad. And there they were. They were caught in the framework, the Soto Zen framework of, you know, this thing, the stamp of approval. So later on that night, I was talking with Hokan-san, and uh, we had a little bit of difficulty because he didn't speak English really well, and I didn't speak Japanese very well, but we actually managed to communicate fairly well. And I realized that their thinking was exactly what this thing is talking about. This monk, when he says, the Dharma is everywhere, so why do you fan yourself? So Hokansan, the way he understood the stamp of approval, or that you have resolved the great matter of life and death, Soto Zen does not talk about that. They don't talk about, when I was with my first teacher, there was no talking about resolving the great matter of life and death. It was just sit, you're already enlightened. So, but what he explained, and how Soto Shu, which is the name for Soto, the Soto school in Japan, Soto Shu, uh, how he understood the meaning of resolving the great matter of life and death, or the true meaning of the wind blows everywhere, uh, um, was that if you got a stamp of approval, that meant you had completed this thing. Okay. So what was next? There you go. There's the framework. So that's the same thing. If you, why are you using a fan? If the, if the practice is everywhere, why are you making the effort to do something, to do, how would I say it? Why sit? Zazen is everywhere. What, why, do you, why do you use Zazen? He has formed another framework. Two things. Why do zazen? Because if everything is that, then why do you need to do zazen? That is two things. The real realization, the merging of difference in unity, is if, if there are no two things, then of course you can do zazen. There's, so he fanned himself. This monk was caught with the idea that, oh, you finished something, or uh, you, you don't need to do zazen anymore. That is what our mind does. It has this absolute, uh, I don't like to use the word ingrained, but it's almost close to being ingrained, a uh, habit of seeing things in terms of a beginning and an end, or seeing things dualistically, forming a framework. So if everything is the Dharma, then why even practice? Why, why, why sit zazen? The, the, the wind is everywhere. Why fan yourself? Why bother? If everything is the Dharma, then everything... Well, his understanding was deeper. He understood that the, the, uh, the Dharma is everywhere. But he did not understand how to function that in his daily life. He didn't, uh, for him, he still had a framework that the Dharma is everywhere. So for him, it was like he was carrying something extra around that's why the teacher says you don't understand um, that this thing does, how does he say that? Uh, you don't know that things also do not exist and that isn't good. That means there can't be any framework whatsoever. None. Absolutely no framework. It's the same statement if you see a Buddha pass him by or if you see a Buddha kill him. 
don't form a framework about anything. It's formless. It's when we create a sense of other or a sense of self that we create suffering. So the uh, teacher just fanned himself, which meant he doesn't create any framework. It's hot, I fan myself. When I'm tired, I go to bed. When I'm hungry, I eat. I don't have this little thing that's that mo most people, when they function in their daily life, it's amazing, actually. Uh, they do things according to a map that they don't even realize that they have created. So the, uh, a monk or a, a, a deeply enlightened being really is in total harmony with their body, complete harmony. So as a consequence, when they're hungry, they eat. Now, most people go, oh, it's lunchtime, I need to eat. So they have a framework, or I need to get eight hours of sleep. The enlightened being doesn't function in that way. They don't feel like they need particularly eight hours of sleep. They, Whatever amount of sleep they need, they can feel what their body needs, and that's what they do. They don't stay in bed. They don't, I mean, maybe if they do, they're very conscious that that's what they're doing. Oh, I, it's, it's my day off. I'm going to sleep in bed for an extra hour and just love this, but I don't really need this. They're very honest about their situation. So when they're, and when they're hungry, they eat. There's no little construct that says it's lunchtime, I have to eat. I wonder how many people actually tune into whether they're truly hungry at that particular time that, they're, that they go to eat a particular meal. I mean, we have to have a framework. We have to have a framework of uh, it's three meals a day if we eat three meals a day. That's true. But there is a real honesty in terms of a deeply enlightened being about their co total communion with their body. So sometimes you're not hungry for lunch or dinner. Sometimes you're hungry later. Now, maybe you're on a schedule and you have to do that, but it's a real um, intimate, because body and mind are one, knowing of, oh, at this moment, I truly am hungry. I'm not just saying in my mind conceptually, it's lunch I need to eat, I, therefore I must be hungry. No. Your body's saying, yeah, actually I'm going to eat lunch now, but I'm not really that hungry, but I'm going to eat lunch. So that kind of honesty, um, and especially we'll see that in Dean Inouye's book, the six senses are in totally, totally, and it's uh, in, in their pure sense, totally uh, the Dharma itself. We've talked about just seeing, uh, the eyes seeing, the ears hearing, and those functions, which is why when we said Sazen, all the sixth sense functions are functioning. So our eyes are half open, we hear things, we don't shut all the windows, we hear everything that goes on, and a lot of things go on. And then we hear, we feel things, we feel the wind, all of this we experience. Um, but our mind is so good at rapidly forming a framework that we don't realize the purity of our senses. We, we literally, um, 
at super speed have already figured out when the eyes open up what something is and whether we like it or don't like it or what, what our opinion is about it. But that initial instantaneous moment, the eyes open up. The other interesting thing that we never think about is the fact that the eyes actually see everything. You can't tell them to, well, don't see that part of your vision, just see this part. It's They see everything. That's the purity, that's the truth of the six senses. It's a shame, and a, but our thinking is very good at selecting things that we like and we don't like. So th this teacher is simply saying, if everything is a dharma, then why don't I fan myself? You're saying, if everything is a dharma, you don't need to do that. Well, then you've created two things. If everything is really the dharma, then just live, function, do your life. Really, truly, it's that's the black ball that rolls around in pitch black darkness. There's no thing saying, oh, well, if the Dharma's everywhere, then I don't need to do this, or I don't need to finish this sitting, or as this Hokansan felt, that meant you finished, so what's next? And I looked at him, and I was a little disappointed. Because, I mean, he's the abbot, and I've, I've known, known him before, and I thought, he thinks that about the practice, that's that's what Inca showed me, is you're finished, and then what's next? I mean, to me, that was just, that's the, that, that was a big framework to be caught in. That wasn't even a subtle one. So I was very surprised by that, very. So the enlightened being doesn't create, when they're, um, first of all, when they're finished, they don't, know they're finished because they don't create a framework about being finished. They just fan themselves. That's what we do, create a framework. But it, there's no reference point because there's no before and after. So in the, the 10 verses of unfathomable depth that we chant in the evening service for Sashin or whatever when we study the book, uh, it says, uh, I'm finished, I'm finished, I'm finished. When you say that, you deserve a good shout. Actually, the teacher will probably whack you. Because there you go. You've got your wonderful little framework again. I'm finished. It's the same thing he was thinking. Well, you're finished, then, yeah. The enlightened being has no sense of being finished. There's no beginning and end. The sound of the hammer, the sound that issues before and after the fall of the hammer in the Jiju Zanman. Okay. The sound that issues before and after the fall of the hammer. And our conceptual framework says, wait a minute. How can the sound issue before the fall of the hammer? That's the paradox. That's also quantum physics. So the paradox is we think in terms of a source, a specific thing, and from that thing comes uh, that's the beginning of something, there's the end of something. So that's, oh, you completed practice, so what's next? Well, the realization is that there's no reference point. There never was a before or after. There never was a time when you were not enlightened. There never was a time you weren't a Buddha. That's what our framework does. It's creating this idea that somehow there's something I have to be or 
get rid of or whatever it is I have to do to realize that I'm Buddha. So that's what this whole thing is talking about. It was the same thing when I asked Haradasekhi Roshi, we talked about the thing with the tea. And I wanted to know what Dharma transmission meant to him. And of course, I told you there was no translator in there, so I'm wondering if he's understanding what I'm asking him, because there was no movement in him. Uh, he wasn't, I felt he wasn't even trying to understand, so I was a little tiny bit perturbed. But then I realized, well, there's no commentator here. He's just not getting it. And seamlessly, he picked up that beautiful little small uh, iron teapot from, and started making tea. And so I just said, oh, what could I do? I sat there and I, then all of a sudden I realized that's the teacher fanning himself. You want a question about Dharma transmission? No movement inside of him. There wasn't something he was going to give me. He just made tea. He expressed the Dharma. He expressed what not to is. He, he or expressed it without even having any intention of expressing it because he already was that. He just made tea. And it was, that's the harp. Play the harp with no strings. No form, formless. It's so difficult to really realize the extent to which our mind creates a form around everything, even deeper understandings of the Dharma. So this monk creates this idea of, okay, you finish, so what's next? And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? I didn't say that. But in a different way, I said, no, no, this, it just means there's no end of practice. There's no separation there. There's no end like that. That's the realization. The realization is that you've always been this way. There never was a time that you were not enlightened, ever. So you don't feel like anything special because it was always this way. So you just get up and you get off your cushion and you walk out and you go to work. Or you fan yourself. Or you make tea. So it is really about, and I can tell you the mind is incredibly good at forming frameworks, conceptual uh, uh, conceptual constructs about anything. So our practice is just to realize the moment it does that. And as our practice deepens, it becomes more difficult to see that because it's they're not so clear. It becomes a little more murky, nebulous. Um, and then you, uh, because it's much more inclusive, so it's bigger, so it's kind of hard to see that you're still forming a framework. So this monk, even though he understood the Dharma was everywhere, he still was forming a framework of, well, if it's everywhere, then I don't need to do something. Well, if it's everywhere, then there can't be that forming of, again, he formed another construct. So when we read the 10 verses of unfathomable depth, it talks about people actually getting caught there. It's even dangerous in the, in the castle of Nirvana. The danger is being caught by some kind of framework. 
especially as you practice deepness and you feel this incredible compassion or what uh, or uh, sense of uh, having a, an ex, uh, a seeing of the truth, not an actual complete um, becoming the truth itself, but an actual glimpse of it, and that is so powerful that the mind tends to want to hold on to that, to own it, to try and recreate it, try to stay there, try to protect it. So it, it's really, it, it requires a very, very intense practice of just simply realizing, oh, I'm doing the same thing all over again. We'll eventually uh, read, there's two little pamphlets I have of Harada Sekulosh's talks that he gave in Germany. And he talks about his enlightenment experience. And um, in that, you can see who he's been practicing for a very long time, very hard. And he's sitting in his zendo. All of a sudden, he hears someone, well, he's, hears someone cough. And he realizes he's sitting in the zendo. He doesn't know how he got there. There was no reference point. That's what I mean by no reference point. We reference everything completely. When there's no reference point, in Buddhism that's called the great death, or stepping off the top of the 100-foot pole. There is nothing describing anything. Without the description, there's no nothing. So, and he, at that particular point, he realized he'd had a deep realization because that, that the cough was the thing that made him aware all of a sudden he was sitting in the zendo. But what did he try and do for the next couple of years? He tried to hang on to it. He realized he was doing the same thing over and over again. And so he had to do three or four or five more years of really hard practice. Same with Dean in a way, if you read what he did. Both of them. So you have to have that strong intent to realize this is what the mind likes to do. It likes to just get it, have it. It's kind of Linus's blanket. Just if I can just get it, have it. It's, it really is, that's the creation of self. Grasping the idea if I can just get it that creates this So our practice is to realize the moment we do that Until one day The actual and that's why it's called realization and not necessarily satori realization is The fact that oh everything is like this everything has always been this way there never, the realization is there never was a time when it wasn't that way. It's like you forgot it a long time ago. It's like some ancient time you forgot this, this truth. That, that is the, that's the time aspect of the realization. It's both space and time. The fact that there's no two things, everything is, there's no two things, and there's no two things in terms of form or time or anything form and time, being time which we'll study at some point Dogen Zenji's being time which has been very much um, compared to Einstein's thinking to quantum physics no space-time continuum the spa it, being time and space-time continuum are identical so all the Buddha did was realize the truth which is what present day quantum physics is trying to show us and uh, we're starting to a tiny little bit get it. So 
at least, like I said, now they're asking themselves, am I asking the right question? And they don't mean, am I doing the right measurements? Or do I need to do different measurements or use it? They're, they're totally, wait a minute, hold, hold it here. Everything's doing according to our framework of reality, the human framework. But the universe is the universe. So are we actually even asking the right questions anymore? That's a koan. They're at the koan stage. It's beautiful. So the Buddha realized that 2,600 years ago. taken us a little bit longer but but we are it's going to be very organic because it's going to be not just on a monk's level it's going to be on a everyday human deeper understanding of reality level it's going to be different if we survive So any questions? And then I'm going to turn the light on. So he writes, if it is not clearly understood that the real form of things is formless, serious mistakes will arise. And um, you uh, expounded on that uh, in terms of framework. Uh, formlessness as not being bound by a framework, if I understand correctly. That's correct. Um, which I appreciated that clarification. I hear the words form and formless sometimes, and my tendency is to revert to you know, thinking, about, thinking about corporeality, right? Like formless being somehow sort of spiritual or ethereal and form being like solid and physical or matter. Um, That's exactly what it means. Okay, so... Okay, now that's interesting. You <laughs> said so both. Um, we have, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, form is no other than emptiness. Emptiness is no other than form. Um, so there was that piece missing for, I guess, the student or the other monk or whoever it was, the you know, interlocutor there. Because, um, I mean, that can't be a serious question, right? Like, why fan yourself? <laughs> like very serious question because he had a deep understanding of the Dharma already. That young monk. But it's it's like a challenge, right? I mean, that's what I mean by not a serious question. Like he surely he wasn't saying why would you fan yourself? Like he's challenging this other teacher's knowledge yeah, of the truth. He's right. challenging him. Yes, very much so. You need to challenge. Challenges throughout the Dharma. It's called Dharma combat. Yes. Um, which seems to be a big part of this. Um, if it's not clearly understood that the real form of things is formless, serious mistakes will arise. That's called the, the world of suffering. That's a serious mistake. The idea that there's a self, which means that there's two things. So when we say form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form. Uh-huh. The form that emptiness is no other than form is the teacher fanning himself. Make sure you dot one half of the thing there. Emptiness is form, but he was stuck in form as emptiness, so why why fan yourself? 
And the teacher says, ah, but you don't realize that emptiness is also form. And this is differentiation within unity. Yes, the merging of the two. And that's the difficult part of practice. A lot of people can realize unity, but how to, to fully realize it. There can't be any sense of unity as opposed to anything. Real unity is, includes something non-unity. I mean, real sameness includes difference, or there wouldn't be a sameness. So uh, it, the difficult part, because our mind always sees in terms of two things, duality, is uh, form is emptiness. Okay, great, form is emptiness. But it's very difficult to see the emptiness is form because it's so stuck in form is emptiness, it can't get that emptiness is also form. That's the paradox. That's what quantum physics is telling us all the time, and our mind goes, what? Because it's stuck in a conceptual way of always. It's always viewed the world, world conceptually, the universe conceptually. So now physicists are asking themselves, wait a minute, are we asking the right question? We're stuck in our own framework. So are we asking the right question? So form is emptiness, which means um, that we literally, that we put frameworks on everything. So that's form is emptiness. And then we get stuck saying, oh, uh, that's the truth. We put forms on everything. And then we think we do but we don't know how to function that in our daily life because it tends to get kind of arthritic or stiff. You don't know how to really do it in your daily life. Well, the teacher just fanned himself, but emptiness is also form. So if the Dharma is everything, fan yourself or don't fan yourself. It's up to you, but both are the Dharma. But we get stuck in form is emptiness and we don't realize emptiness is also form. That's very difficult because the mind, in a conceptual framework, it cannot understand and it cannot understand that. It can't. It doesn't have, it doesn't, it's like trying to understand the third dimension by living in the second dimension. You can't. You have to go to the third dimension to understand the third dimension. You can't even conceive of what a sphere is in the second dimension. There's no way. It just doesn't happen until you go to the third dimension. So our mind cannot understand not to as long as it's creating this sense of other. Even a deep understanding of other is still other. So it really is about letting go of everything. So we talk about taking a step off the top of the 100-foot pole. There, the ego, in the sense of that there are two things, this and other things, or a sense of self, sees that literally as death. Because your, your thing was about, the question was interesting, and it's also the truth, is that it is about a corporeal thing in terms of form. We're talking about concept. But what you don't understand is that concept gives you the sense of substantiality. We think of concept as thinking. That's just thinking. And then we have our solid separate body. No. 
concept creates the idea, the, the actual sense of solidity. It creates solidity, concept does. That's why we say dropping off body and mind. We, we just, because we're Westerners and the, I think people in, the, in Asian countries have a more, it's easier for them to understand this in a particular way. But we're very Aristotelian, we're very like linear. So um, when we say form is emptiness and emptiness is form, or when we talk about concept, we think about, oh, it's our ideas about things. We don't realize that we actually have an idea that things are solid and separate. We see that as different. That's like a body, it's corporeal. No, it's your concept. That's how deep concept runs. It gives us the sense of separateness. That's why we sort of do it all the time. It's not just thinking. I mean, it is thinking. It's, it's creating frameworks about things. But the framework means we think things are solid and substantial, therefore separate. But they're, they're not solid and substantial. Quantum physics tells us this all the time. There's no reference point. There's no source. There's no self. So the experience of dropping off body and mind is actually actually experiencing that all things exist in the same place at the same time. Absolutely all of them in the same place at the same time. The conceptual framework says, uh-uh-uh-uh, things are solid, they can't do that, they, they can't have everything in the same place at the same time, there are different places and they maybe get crowded together, but they're not all in the same place at the same time. Oh, yes, they are. It's almost, it, it's almost like, well, in a sense, that's true. That's quantum physics is also coming up with the same thinking, that things are holographic. They're not substantial. So everything exists in the same place at the same time. It's an amazing thing. That's why you can see black and white, and there doesn't seem to be any problem with them both being there, even if you were looking for white. The conceptual framework, when it's looking for something, gets rid of everything and concentrates on that one thing. It, it thinks it has to get rid of everything else to find the one thing. Well, the reality of the universe, or non-conceptual, is no you don't have to get rid of the other things because the other things are what enable this thing to be. Without black, you can't have white. So the enlightened being sees black and white, and I mean see, but they don't perceive them as being substantial. So they see black and white, and all of a sudden they understand, wow, they both can be there. It's the first time you realize that your mind is constantly throwing things out and focusing on one thing. All of a sudden you realize it's allowing this black to be there too. And there's no problem. That's the first time you understand what white is for the very first time. It's like all of a sudden you understand white is there, but so is black and red and everything. All of a sudden you understand unity. You understand what white is. 
white is white because there is red and blue and black. But our conceptual framework says, no, I have to get rid of all of that so that I can just have the one thing there. Then that's white. It doesn't include. It, it excludes. So now physicists are thinking that the universe is holographic. Okay. I remember reading like the Tao Te Ching, you know, like in my early 20s, and there's a bit in there about how a cup is only useful because of the space inside the cup, which, you know, I, I forget exactly how it was put. Um, I don't know. It's like, you know, learning music. When I was learning music, you know, you learn to see negative space, right? You, you, you learn to see the space in between the notes. Um, but it's interesting because I'm thinking that maybe I've been hung up there for a long time in that there's been this, I've had this sense that space is sort of delimited by, or let's say emptiness and form, that emptiness is delimited by form. And beyond that, again, with music and art, I feel like maybe you've come to see that form is actually delimited by space, but actually it's not that way either, right? Like, it form is empty. Like they're not they're not walled off from each other. There is only it. But I don't understand how time. I don't understand how time works with that because I I think I don't know uh, ten directions three worlds right past present and future the sound b before and after the the hammer strikes the bell. I guess when there's that sort of false duality, I feel like there's that 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 very appearance of duality, that delusion of duality, is actually instructive in itself in getting past that 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 duality. But I, how does that work with time? <laughs> I'm not understanding exactly. Um... Well, I, okay, so. Well, time. everything all in the same place, all at the same time. Because time is yes, not... it would have to be, wouldn't it? <laughs> because we... Time is exactly... Um, in a rational way, when you really think about it, which is actually... The very beginning of what I'm going to say because it's it's not rational but is that there's only the past isn't here the future is not here the only thing we have are moments of time of now so when we're in now we think about the past and our mind automatically creates this sense of length that oh yeah I remember when I was three and this and then we we sort of Come, sort of have a little string that attaches to now, and we feel like, oh, I remember that was me when I was three. Well, we think about the future, and we're worried about, you know, there's going to be maybe a war in Ukraine, or is there to be, going to be a democracy in the United States? And we're thinking about that, but we're doing that in now, right now. But we're not aware that we're doing that, that we're creating again conceptual. We're putting it out there. It's like a telescope we're extending out there, but it's actually coming from here or extending back in times of the past. So when you experience real time, 
there is no sense of that. Uh, and to explain it in terms of concept is impossible, except to say that you do not, because concept can't experience non-concept. It can't. It's, like I said, it's in the second dimension trying to understand the third dimension. So what we do when we sit is we allow that thing called concept to just sit. We don't play with it. We don't engage in it. We don't augment it. We don't negate it. We just don't play with it over and over again until we realize that there's something else. If we don't play with not with conceptual, then there's no concept. We don't play with it. But we're, we, we, boy, we love playing with it. Super speed. You know, the minute something comes up, we just, we just dart right out and grab it. So our practice is to realize that that's what we're doing. Oh, back to the moment, back to the moment, back to the moment, back to the breath. So, and then the experience of dropping off or realization, the true realization of time, is that you just realize that there never was a time when it wasn't that way. It just is this incredible realization that, and you know this, it's an absolute knowing. Wait a minute, it's always been this way. It's like all of a sudden you remembered something you forgot a long time ago. In Buddhism, it's called, and it's so familiar, it's the most familiar thing you will ever experience in your life. In Buddhism, it's called being something that's more familiar than the face of your mother and your father. It's there's because it's the truth. When you actually experience the truth, it's like you go, oh, there's there's no doubt. You've experienced the truth. It confirms itself. Truth confirms itself. So all of a sudden, you experience true time. I mean, that there's no. It's always been this way. And there's just this, oh. Oh, that's, it's always, it's like, oh, it's always been this way. And there is no ripple. There's no slight little perturbance. There's nothing. It's just, oh, everything's been this way. And it's settled. It's like, oh, everything, it's, everything's always been like this. But we go, if we, and it's, per, it's complete. It's, it's, it's a cutting off of the grasping uh, habit of the mind. Or in Buddhism, it's called samskara skanda. The thing, interestingly enough, I want to find that article in the Scientific American that describes, I'm wondering if they're Buddhists and they're trying to describe it to people in a way that makes it palatable. Because it was Buddhism to the T, that we actually react to circumstances and change according to circumstances, and that there's something in our brain they realize that makes us have the sense of substance or substantiality. There's an actual place in the brain. Well, in Buddhism, it's called samskara skanda. It's called the together maker. It gives this sense that all this stuff we're we're experiencing our form, feelings, perceptions, impulses, and consciousness, the five skandhas, all of that, uh, which is what is functioning, all of a sudden something goes, it's like, and it feels like you just all of a sudden, just like a jolt, oh, and then, oh, 
Here I am. Put together, maker. Here I am. But the experience of dropping off body and mind is that there is it's no. There is no thing like that. There's no other thing. There's just there's no other thing. There's no reference point. There's no other thing. There are no two things in the universe. We create that with our conceptual fiber. There are no two things. But from the age of two, we have created a sense of two things called a self, and therefore other things. And everybody's doing it. Um, it's a tendency the mind. I think it's a self-protective mechanism, pretty much, that the mind does, just to protect. It's, it's got to figure out the next moment, or figure out if that's safe or not safe, or we're guaranteed to get this, we're not going to get that, whatever it is. That's what our mind does. So it takes an enormous intent and practice to literally settle that. That's why we use the metaphor of the wild ox. There's very few animals as strong as an ox. And you, I'm sure you've seen your own mind. You've been practicing for a while. It is like a wild ox. It's like a very powerful ox. It wants to do what it wants to do. It wants enlightenment, but. It wants enlightenment, but. You know. It's, it also wants to know that it has enlightenment, that it can get enlightenment. But it can't get enlightenment if it has a sense of wanting to get enlightenment. So it's empirical, which means it's real. It's not up here. There are no two things. There's no um, other. There is no substantiality. There's no before and after. Empirical means it's real. This is real. This isn't something we're just talking about or something that's while well, you read about it or it's an experience. It's real. It's the way things are. So, are we asking the right question? Is an interesting place for modern day theoretical physicists who it's incredible that we've we're finally getting here they have to recognize that the very profundity the very not knowing itself is the answer we don't like unknowing we like to have a center. We like to have a thing, a measurement, a guide, something. But unknowing, we somehow we have to fix unknowing. The universe is full of unknowing. But unknowing doesn't mean that you're ignorant or you don't understand. Unknowing is simply that you're open to the way things truly are. That's it. Unknowing is emptiness.
Remember, emptiness has two meanings, shunyata, empty and full. That's what the meaning of shunyata is. Empty of your conception, your, your construct, your, your conceptual framework. Therefore, it's full. It can include everything. You're not excluding things. It doesn't have to fit into a framework. Everything is there. So black and white can be there with no problem whatsoever. So, any other questions? Um, I don't have any other questions about tonight's reading or discussion. I do have a couple of other questions, but I can certainly hold those until whenever it's appropriate. Oh, such as? Um, one has to do with uh, an old friend of mine uh, killed themselves uh, on Friday. I just found out about that this weekend, and um, I've been doing some things myself at home, but I was wondering if, um, how I guess I might, um, you know, ask ask you to include them in the ceremony on Saturday. Definitely can. Just give me their name and the birth date and their death date. Okay. And do a um, memorial service for them on Saturday. Thank you. Um, the second question uh, is a practical one about material for the rock zoo. Um, the text talks about you know three kinds or three ways of getting material. You know, there's this idea of uh, cloth left in a field and. <laughs> um, yeah, and of course, just you know, buying it like getting getting new cloth. Um, but there's also this idea of getting cloth from donors and then dyeing it all the same color and sewing it together. Um, and I was wondering if that would be a, an appropriate approach to take. I understand that it needs to be 100% cotton cloth, but cotton or poly cotton blend is okay too. Okay. Um, would it be appropriate for me to reach out to some people who are close to me and ask for? I think that's beautiful. Yes, I mean that. That's I mean the the Buddhist robes initially were formed or made out of you know the cloth off the dead bodies. They wrapped the bodies in cloth, and so they would they they were poor. They had nothing, so they simply took the cloth, the wrappings of off the dead bodies, and dyed them all the same color and made them into a rock suit, or I mean an okesa. Which is why they're also pieces. I mean, you know. We, so, um, no, I think that's beautiful. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. When I made my Okesa, the big, the big robe, I had uh, 20 members of the Sangha put their stitches in it. You're supposed oh. to sew it yourself. But I wanted them, I wanted the Sangha to be in my Okesa. So I asked them, and so I have the stitches of 20 people. So that you have that same intent, that's it, that's fine, that's beautiful. Anything else?
And just give me the name of your friend. It's really, yeah. The name of your friend and the birth date and his death date. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Good night.